This is Dave Smith, author of Disney Trivia from the Vault and Disney A to Z, and you're listening to Stories of the Magic. Welcome to Stories of the Magic, an unofficial Disney podcast with your host, Randy Crane. Hear stories from Disney cast members, Imagineers, artists, and more right here on Stories of the Magic. And now, here's your host, Randy Crane. Welcome to episode 48 of Stories of the Magic. I'm Randy, your host. Thank you for joining me. In this episode, we have the first of a two-part interview with Doug Lipp. Doug enjoyed a unique career with Disney, from a marketing internship to Disneyland to Tokyo Disneyland to Disney University in multiple roles, and we touch on all of it. He also has some great insights about leadership, whether you're leading a multi-billion dollar corporation or your own family. And he had some amazing mentors. In this episode, Doug talks about how he got started at Disney and what he did at first, uh, his internship with the Magic Kingdom Club, his original goal and how Disney sidetracked that, in a good way, an early memory of going to Disneyland, what brought him back to the Walt Disney Company after graduate school, combining his training skills and Japanese language skills to help with the opening of Tokyo Disneyland. Two of his primary mentors, Van France, founder of Disney University, and Jim Cora, who, among other things, was on Walt Disney's team to open the Enchanted Tiki Room. The origins of the term onstage, backstage, cast member, etc., as they related to Disneyland. What it was like to visit Tokyo Disneyland for the first time in 19 years. The similarities he sees between Japanese culture and Disney culture taking the opportunity to lead the training team at the Walt Disney Studios and what he did in that role. A great but brief discussion about former Walt Disney Studios chairman Dick Cook. By the way, side note, that's somebody else I'd really love to interview. So if you're listening and you know how to connect me with him, please call or email me. I'll give you the information on how to do that at the end of the show. A rarely heard quote from Walt Disney, which is now one of my favorites, how he met his wife Pam while working for Disney, the transition of the Walt Disney Company to Michael Eisner and Frank Wells, and his experience giving them their name badges after training, a memory of when he knew he was doing something truly special, and more. And now, a brief word from a fellow podcaster and friend, and then it's time to turn the page and start this story. My name is Al. And I'm Joyce. And we're We're huge huge Disneyland Disneyland fans. fans. In fact, we love the Disneyland Resort so much, we host a podcast dedicated to the happiest place on Earth to share that passion with others. That's right. On our show, Tales from the Mouse House Disneyland Podcast, we share current resort news, some tips and tricks we've learned over the years to help make your Disneyland Resort vacation the most magical experience ever. We uncover little-known and often-overlooked gems we like to call hidden treasures and even review the attractions and places to eat that make the Disneyland Resort so much fun. And if that wasn't enough, we even share some video episodes to help keep you in that Disney magic state of mind. If you're a longtime fan of the Disneyland Resort or you've just recently discovered the magic, this podcast is for you. You can find Tales from the Mouse House Disneyland Podcast at www. Talescast.com and in iTunes. And remember, make, make it, it a, a Mickey, Mickey day. day. And now, this week's interview on Stories of the Magic. One of my favorite things to do on this podcast is talk to people who've played a significant role in the Walt Disney Company, but that the average Disney fan may not be familiar with. And at the same time, talk about other people that maybe I don't have direct access to, but that also had a significant role. Uh, Doug Lipp is one of those people who's going to kind of enable us to do both of those things. Doug began his career with Disney in 1981 as a college intern in the Disneyland Marketing Department. 
After graduate school, he was fast-tracked into an exclusive Disney management training program, where he was quickly promoted to a leadership role in the prestigious Disney University. Doug was one of the American executives assigned to build and open Tokyo Disneyland, training the Japanese executives in the Disney way. For two years, Doug helped manage both the construction and operations phases of Tokyo Disneyland, including hiring and training more than 4,000 Japanese employees. After completion of his work at Tokyo Disneyland in 1983, Doug returned to Disney's headquarters to lead corporate training initiatives at a time of tumultuous challenges, not the least of which was a change in leadership, away from a family-led business. Disney was threatened by hostile corporate raiders and the leadership team was under constant attack, but eventually Michael Eisner stepped in as CEO, joined by COO Frank Wells, and a modern era of a Walt and Roy Disney-like partnership had begun. After a time of working with Disney's new leadership team, Doug decided to leave the Walt Disney Company to pursue his passions for researching and analyzing successful global corporations, and this is what he's doing today through his company, G. Doug Lip & Associates. He's also written several books, including Disney U, How Disney University Develops the World's Most Engaged, Loyal, and Customer-Centric Employees, Stuck in the Middle Seat, and his first book, The Success of Tokyo Disneyland. That's quite an introduction, Doug. Welcome to Stories of the Magic. Randy, you've done your homework. Thanks very much. The The only addition I have is that actually as an intern, I started at Disney in 1978. But other than that, your your intro is spot on. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Thank you. <laughs> so since we're on the subject of you starting at Disney and at Disneyland specifically, tell me how you got started with the Walt Disney Company and what you did there. Well, my college internship was with the MKC, the Magic Kingdom Club, which is now defunct. It's no longer there, but it was a tremendous marketing tool to invite organizations into the Disney properties at a discount. And one of their initiatives was to offer training opportunities to organizations that didn't have the staff or the budget to do training or orientation. And so I was first paired up with some executives from the Disney University when I was in the my own college days. And we created kind of a, a beginner approach to Disney University for the members of the Magic Kingdom Club. And during this six-month internship, I realized that education and training in a corporate environment could be very engaging. Okay, so that was not something that you'd necessarily considered before this internship, and then did that set the direction of your continuing education and things after you finished your internship? Most definitely. In fact, Randy, I was my undergraduate degree at Long Beach State was in recreation and business management, so they, the uh, senior year of my of my course, I had to do six months in a nonprofit and six months in a for-profit recreation-oriented environment, and so the six months in the for-profit recreation-oriented environment was at Disney, and that truly set the course for the rest of my life. That makes sense. I'm curious, if you don't mind me asking, which one was the nonprofit? The nonprofit was a state park. So I worked in a state park, and I, I led tours of various locations. But my goal, actually, Randy, I wanted to be a YMCA director and conduct international exchange programs between the U.S. and international locations because I saw the benefit of high school and junior high and college students seeing other cultures. And that was kind of sidetracked when I got a taste of Disney because they were starting to think about going international when I was a college student, and the stars kind of aligned as a result of all that. Oh, how interesting. Okay. So it's, it seems to me anyway that what you ended up doing for Disney is uh, pretty far removed from your original intent with the YMCA. But something tells me that there's probably some underlying connections between those two. Yeah, most definitely. It was all about uh, personnel development, and I was always involved in training and and teaching at some level, even through junior high and high school years. And so what I found in my internship with the Magic Kingdom Club was that even a large corporation could create a training environment that was engaging, that would help employees. And even as a customer myself, as an eight-year-old child, I've got memories of going to Disneyland and always had, had thoughts of how do they create those kinds of employees. And when I first came into contact with those great executives at the Disney University was when I was in college, 
I started to realize that, man, these guys have something that I'd like to learn more about. Wow. Um, was there a point in your internship where you kind of started to pinpoint, oh, this is what it is. This is the thing or things that sets Disney and their customer service apart from all of these other companies. Well, it's it's hard to say because I'd always been involved in education myself. But to be honest, what I was focused on at the time, Randy, was my, my minor was Japanese language in college. And I was ready to go to Japan for graduate school. And so what really tipped the scales for me, Randy, was when I was in Japan as a student studying language, and I, I studied Japanese all through high school and, and college days, and then when I went to grad school in Japan, is one of my relatives, my dad, in fact, sent me a, a letter about Disney had signed a deal to open up their first international theme park, and lo and behold, it was in Japan. I started to think even more seriously that, my goodness, there are some real connections here between my love of training, my love of Japanese language and Japanese culture, and perhaps there's a future for me in this company as opposed to that direction we talked earlier about with a, a YMCA. And then that was your introduction after graduate school to bring you back into the Walt Disney Company to be part of the Tokyo Disneyland project. Exactly. In fact, I called the guy who was in charge of the Magic Kingdom Club, a guy named Bob Baldwin, and he said, well, you know, everybody has to start at the bottom at Disneyland at the time, and so you can either be a ride operator or you can be a Japanese interpreter. And long story short, I interviewed for a Japanese interpreter position, which was designed to train the Japanese executives who were coming over to learn Disneyland operating philosophies. And they were coming over for six to 18 months of training well before Tokyo Disneyland opened. And so that was a tremendous opportunity, Randy, where I got to use my Japanese language skills and my training skills and apply it in an organization such as Disney that had impacted me so greatly as a child. Wow, that's fantastic, Doug. So if I'm understanding all of this correctly, they came over here first, the, the Japanese executives, and then at some point in the development of Tokyo Disneyland, you went over there so you could then be on the ground there to get things rolling on that side. Exactly. I mean, the, the negotiations for Tokyo Disneyland lasted for years, but when all was said and done, the Japanese knew that they had to come to the United States, learn the Disney way, and then return to Japan to help open and create this amazing park. And I was luckily picked up by some amazing mentors who said, you know, you're a great interpreter, but, you know, we see some potential for you in other <laughs> areas. So why don't you join what was at the time known as the Disney Intern Program? And this was different than what I was involved in in college days. This was actually a, a very fierce competition to be chosen as, a, as an intern within the organization, and I was picked up by the Human Resources Disney University team to be their, one of their representatives to learn more about training and development. So it was a number of things that really came together that, uh, that I have to say was a combination of luck and, uh, I guess, being prepared. Yeah, I've heard many times that luck is often where preparation meets opportunity. Exactly. And I had some great mentors that gave me some opportunities that opened my eyes to some new things and challenged me and said, you know, you can do more than what you're doing right now, and I'm forever beholden to them. And I actually do want to ask you about them, but before I do, I want to sidetrack onto something else that you had mentioned, because you were saying that the Japanese executives and every, you know, the people that were in charge of the Tokyo Disneyland project knew that they had to come over here first to learn the Disney way before trying to implement it over there. And it made me think about going to Walt Disney World for the first time, which I did about three years ago. And I've been to Disneyland countless times, but going there was a very new experience. And when I came back, I kept telling people, I can describe this to you and show you pictures and videos, and that's great but you're not going to really understand it unless you're there. You have to be in the middle of it. Exactly. Was it the same kind of thing for the executives learning the Disney way and kind of they had to be here and be in the middle of it and really experience it at more than just what explanation or videos or something like that would do? Oh, most definitely. I mean, you, you learn through your, your eyes, your ears and your skin, your body. And, and for them, 
the executives to come to the United States and and see how this happiest place on earth was created and not only the science behind it but the art behind it and one of the things that the Japanese are very good at is analysis and logistics and and linear thinking but one of the things that we were very careful to um, make sure they understood was this concept of smiling every day and everybody is a is a VIP is something that has been in place ever since Walt dreamed of Disneyland and and ultimately what what I think and not only myself but other executives who really started Tokyo Disneyland is that the combination of the Japanese culture and their focus on customer service and being other centered was a perfect match for the Disney corporate philosophy of creating that happiest place on earth and being other centered. So it was really a, a great opportunity both for the Japanese to learn about us but also for Disney executives to learn even more about how other cultures create happiness. Yeah, definitely. And I have a feeling we could probably talk for an hour or so about uh, how, like, what they did, you know, in the development and learning process there. But we'll maybe set that aside for another day because exactly. I do want to go back and uh, ask you about these mentors that you had mentioned. Um, who were they? What did they do? Well, there there are a number of people, but in, in two primary uh, mentors. Uh, one is Van France, and the other is a man named Jim Cora. And Van France was the founder of the Disney University, and he was hired by Walt Disney in 1954, early 55. So they met in 54, early 55, to hire and train cast members to create the happiest place on earth. And so Van was one of these people that I came into contact with when I was an intern at the Disney University who really brought forth what it was like to work for a man as creative and brilliant as Walt. And certainly I never got to work with Walt. So Van was a direct connection to Walt. And then the other man, Jim Cora, who retired after a 43-year career as the chairman of Disneyland International. And he was in charge of the opening of Tokyo Disneyland, of, of Disneyland Paris, of Tokyo Disney Sea, but most importantly, he was actually on Walt's team at uh, Retlaw to open the Enchanted Tiki Room. And so this this man who took me under his wing was an amazing operations expert, but he was also on the startup team with Van France to create the Disney University. Oh wow, that's quite a range of experience that Jim Cora had too. Amazing, it sounds guy. like. Yeah, definitely. Now, we talked about the internship that you did, and then we talked here a little bit about Disney University and Van France starting that. What is the connection, or is there a connection between those two things? Like you had mentioned the Magic Kingdom Club that you were starting when you were an intern. So how how do or do those two pieces fit together? Well, the Disney University was started back in 1962. So really Disneyland predates Disney University. Uh, of course, Disneyland, as, as your listeners know, was started in July of 1955. And Van France was the originator of the new higher orientation program. And he was the originator of the whole concept of, of using show business terminology. So let's use cast members as opposed to employees. You're part of the show um, on stage versus backstage. So Here's the guy that really took Walt's dream of creating the happiest place on earth and transformed it into verbiage that was understandable by 16-year-olds, 15-year-olds, 82-year-old cast members <laughs> who didn't have a clue as to what a theme park was because there would never been a theme park built before. Sure. Yeah, it's amazing what happens when you're doing the first of something. You don't have anything to point to and say, do it like this. Exactly. Yeah. At best, you might be able to point to a bad example and say, don't do it like that. Right, right, right. Okay. Uh, so that started there uh, before the Magic Kingdom Club that you had talked about. And then did the Magic Kingdom Club like kind of turn into anything related to that? I, I think I remember you saying that there 
it was kind of a precursor to then something else that you had done later on. Well, the Magic Kingdom Club was really, that was a, a marketing arm of the company, and the only connection was they wanted to reach out to their membership organizations and provide them additional benefits as, as members. And one of those benefits was to enjoy the the benefits of what it's like to have a Disney University in-house, even though those small companies didn't have an in-house training team. So really, the Magic Kingdom, the MKC, was a, a minor part of this whole thing, but that coincidentally was my my internship as a as a college student. Okay, I understand now. So Disney University already existed in house, yes. and part of MKC was let's take this inside thing and kind of bring it outside a little bit and show people that what's done in Disney can apply in other contexts exactly. as well. Yeah, yeah. Okay, got it. So as you were working on the development or training the executives for Tokyo Disneyland, now at some point you went over there to work on the the development and the launch of Tokyo Disneyland uh, as part of that, correct? Yes. Um, after my internship at the Disney University ended, I was working as a trainer at Disney University at Disneyland and loving doing new hire orientation for Disney cast members, uh, doing supervisory training, leadership training. I mean, the Disney University has a variety of levels of training. And then I was approached by Jim, who said, you know what, we've got this this operation back in Japan, and you were an interpreter for the group uh, a year ago, and now you're in the Disney University, but we still need to go to Japan and hire and train a whole lot of Japanese cast members, and we also have to relocate a whole lot of American cast members into Japan, would you like to be part of this project? And my answer was immediately, yes, I'd love to go back to Japan. So in 1981, I went to Japan, and for two years prior to the opening of the park, I was involved in a variety of things, whether it was uh, helping Americans relocate to Japan and getting, getting apartments and getting their kids into school, to helping start up the, the Disney University at Tokyo Disneyland and training the new cast members. Um, so I was partially under Imagineering at the time it was known as WED, and then when it transferred over to operations, I was under the, the Disneyland team. So it was, as with any grand opening, you wear a whole lot of different hats in a short amount of time. Oh, absolutely. I can only imagine. So it sounds like when you were doing the interpreting, there wasn't necessarily, at least that you knew about, a plan in place that a year or so later would take you to Tokyo. It was just something you were doing there, and then when that assignment was done, you transitioned into uh, Disney University and didn't really think about putting those two together personally. Exactly, Randy, and that's where my mentor, Jim Cora, stepped in, and he saw the potential in me with the language ability with Japanese and English and then spending a year studying the Disney philosophy and the Disney way, both as an interpreter and also my six months as uh, an intern within that program and learning the Disney way, it was a, a perfect connection. And that shows you the brilliance of a, of a leader like Jim who saw that potential. Right. That's rare. Malt had it and a select few others have right, that right. I know about. And you know, Jim is definitely on that short list. Right. I assume that you wanted to work at Disneyland even just for that internship because, like a lot of people that I've talked to that worked at Disneyland, um, you grew up in Southern California. And so, of course, you wanted to work at Disneyland. Um, Were there any other pieces to wanting to work there besides that and the appeal that you had seen as you were growing up? Well, actually, I grew up in Sacramento, and that's where I live currently. So I never resided in Southern California, but my aunt and uncle lived in Santa Monica. And so on an annual basis, my family and I would trek down south, and it was you know the, the eight-hour drive down south, and my sister and I would fall asleep in the back of the car, and we'd arrive you know at O-Dark 30 in, in, in Santa Monica. And I have a distinct memory, Randy, of... I think I was eight years of age. I mentioned this earlier, being an eight-year-old, but going through uh, either Frontierland or Tom Sawyer Island, 
And one of the uh, security cast members bent over and asked me if I was having a good day. And, of course, as an 8-year-old, you look at these security officers, and he was at least 10 feet tall as far as I was concerned. And he had these <laughs> big, giant black boots on, and he was, you know, perfectly dressed. And he bent over and said, Doug, are you having a good day? And I looked at my parents, and they kind of shrugged their shoulders, and I thought, my gosh, this guy is clairvoyant. How does he know my name? Well, of course, I had my Mickey Mouse ears on, and my parents, a few hours ago, had purchased my cap and put my name on it. So, you know, this this guy was just reading my name. But in retrospect, it was an indication of how you create the happiest place on earth and connect and create those moments of magic with each guest, whether they're a, a child or an older guest. Absolutely. That makes sense. And it is those simple things that make a huge difference. So I had assumed that you lived in Southern California because you had made that mention of Long Beach. So That was just during my university days. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Your story's better anyway. <laughs> I like to be closer to the ski hills. So I, I ski at Tahoe and I love Sacramento. So Southern California was fine when it was, but <laughs> no longer. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. <ya. laughs> What is your connection to or interest in uh, Japan and Japanese language and culture? Where did that come from? Well, I started studying Japanese when I was in high school, and it was my minor in, in at Long Beach State. And then I went to grad school at uh, International Christian University in Tokyo. So it's it's been a lifelong journey of studying the language and the culture. And over the years, I've lived in Japan between my university days and Disney days, I lived in Japan for five years, six years, and then I've traveled back and forth to Japan on business for, gosh, three, four decades, multiple times. In fact, my wife and I were just in Japan last month. We were on a worldwide tour promoting my book, Disney University, and we were in Tokyo. We were in the Middle East. We visited Tokyo Disneyland for the first time in 19 years. And this, of course, as you know, is the 30th anniversary of Tokyo Disneyland. And to go back there after so many years and seeing how it's grown tremendously in Tokyo Disney Sea was a great reward for my wife and I. Oh, I can only imagine. Yeah, I talked to an Imagineer who had worked on some of the Tokyo Disneyland and Tokyo Disney Sea's work. In fact, he was one of the guys that was involved in doing the master planning for uh-huh. it, uh, Mark Hickson. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so he had a, he told me a little bit about uh, Tokyo as well, and that was really interesting. Do you have any idea what it is that is so appealing to you about uh, the Japanese culture and language? Like, I, I know that you started studying it when you were in school, but was it just because you had to take a foreign language, and that one was handy? Uh, no, it was. Uh, I, I hated Spanish, and that was, you know, Spanish, German, French is what you got in, in high school, and I uh, I hated it. And I had a friend who wanted to study some Japanese, and so I, I went to school with my friend, and the teacher was fun, and I think there was just a connection at a, at a visceral level uh, with the culture. And what I found over the years with my connection with Disney and my connection with the Japanese culture was there was so many similarities between being other-centered and creating this environment of openness and welcomeness, and it really just turned into this opportunity that, yes, my language skills were there, but also Disney as a corporation enabled me to, uh, I guess, uh, realize my dream of how do you how do you monetize your schooling? <laughs> That's always an important part of that. <laughs> so, okay, so you spent a couple of years in Tokyo uh, doing that work, and then you came back to the U.S. and continued to work for Disney for a while at that pretty pivotal time in the company's history. Uh, what did you do when you got back? Well, I had opportunities, Randy, to go back to Disneyland, or it, uh, I could have gone back to Walt. I could have gone to Walt Disney World and worked at Epcot Center at the time. It was called Epcot Center. Now we know the name has changed multiple times, but it's now known as Epcot. But to work with the World Showcase cast members and go out and recruit the international cast members who populate uh, World Showcase, as we know that that's the essence of World Showcase at Walt Disney World. 
So to recruit and train those international cast members. And the third option was to go to the Disney headquarters in Burbank at the Walt Disney Studios. And after a lot of hand-wringing and, and cogitation, I decided, you know, I've I've been in the theme park environment. I'd rather go to the headquarters and see what that's all about. Plus, I was given the opportunity to lead the training team at the Disney University at Walt Disney Studios. So I, I chose that direction. Interesting. Okay. Uh, so what did you do as part of that role? Well, at Disney Studios, it's a totally different gig than at Disneyland. You don't have these uh, high school and college age and maybe returning cast members who are thrilled to be at Disneyland or Disney World. This was a different culture in that you've got uh, Hollywood executives and you've got producers and you've got uh, customers that demand a lot more, customers meaning internal cast members. And so for me, it was an opportunity to expand my my skills as a trainer at Disney University in that I wasn't addressing these um, starry-eyed cast members who were just sucking up Disney. These were grizzled Hollywood veterans who sometimes would push back and say, well, you know what, Disney isn't at the cutting edge of everything. And so for me, it was a tremendous opportunity, Randy, to challenge myself as a trainer, um, as a conveyor of Disney philosophy to an audience that was entirely different than at Disneyland or at Tokyo Disneyland. Yeah, how did you were there any specific ways that you made that shift or was it just kind of observation and, you know, kind of adapting on the fly as you looked at this basically bringing the same approach or the same intent and purpose to such a different environment? Well, as I write in my book, Disney You, and this is really the key that I want to talk about with, with you and your listeners, is this, this corporate culture of Disney. And when I was at Disney Studios, and at the time, Dick Cook was not the chairman of Disney Studios, but he was a senior executive there. And as we all know, and as your listeners know, Dick was instrumental in creating the Pirates of the Caribbean film series and bringing Johnny Depp on board. Dick was one of those guys who had started at Disneyland as a monorail ride operator. And he learned from Van France, again, the founder of Disney University, that no one is above stepping into a training role. And so whenever I would call Dick Cook and say, we've got a training program for mid-managers or upper managers, would you please come in and give an overview of what the studio is doing? He was there in a heartbeat. And so he reflected Walt Disney's value of, of education. And so to answer your question, what I realized was that even for the most grizzled Hollywood veteran, channeling Walt Disney's value of education and entertainment, having fun, was equally applicable both at the studios or at the theme parks. That does make sense, Doug. I can see how the connection would be there, and I think maybe in some cases it just takes telling someone these things apply here too and showing them, and then they, they're not necessarily opposed to it. They just had never thought about it before. Yeah, and, and it's not just talking about it. It's when, when Dick would walk into a training program you would all of a sudden see people sit up straighter and say, wow, here's an executive addressing us as opposed to it's just a video or it's a quote on the wall. This is the actual guy coming in and talking to us about the importance of connecting the, the product with, with uh, guest service. Right. And he lived that out in what he did as an executive too. I mean, I remember seeing the, uh, the studio's presentation at the 2090-23 Expo, which he was essentially hosted that right. presentation. Right. And it was fantastic. I mean, it kind of set the bar for everything else, not just in terms of star power or anything like that, but you could tell how much he cared about what he was presenting, how much the people who were involved in it cared about it and about him, and 
just kind of bringing that level of excellence and service and quality and everything to every single one of those projects. And that's the key is that type of man and woman who worked for Disney and who were my mentors really embodied that concept that, that Walt um, started was, you know, we can, we can work hard, but we can also play hard and, and let's be laser focused, but let's also have a heart and one of the, one of my favorite Walt Disney quotes that's from the a great little poster in the Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco is this is develop your sense of humor and eventually it will develop you and so here's Dick Cook as the chairman of Disney Studios having fun here's Marty Sklar as the vice chairman of Imagineering leading uh, executive retreats on on how would you create a new attraction at one of our theme parks? You know, we can learn, but we can also have fun at the same time. And that's no different from our guests at our theme parks. And it's no different from our executives at our studios or at Imagineering or elsewhere. Right. I love that quote. I, it's rare to hear a quote from Walt Disney that I'm not incredibly familiar with. And I've been to the Walt Disney Family Museum, but there's so much to see there. Um, I missed that one. Well, Randy, it's in the first display. You go past the foyer where all the uh, Academy Awards are, including the one that Walt received in 1938, the Oscar, and then the seven small Oscars lined up next to it that basically represent Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. So there's all this flash and everything else. But I agree with you that I went through that with my wife, we met with Ron Miller last year when I was researching for Disney U, and he invited my wife and I into the the museum. We spent two days going through that beautiful facility, and of all these glitzy displays and wonderfully produced displays, this one little poster, in fact, it's not even a poster, it's an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper in a frame, from when Walt was the editor of his high school newspaper from in 1917-1918. And it has a, a whimsical drawing of a man who's got like a pipe or a cigar or something in his mouth. And the whole idea is to have fun and to learn at the same time. And I, I, I quoted that in my book, Disney U, because, yes, there are so many quotes out there by Walt that we've all heard and some <laughs> are unsubstantiated. But this is one that just jumped out to me that represented the essence of what I learned from Van France and Jim Cora at the Disney University is, yes, we all have to learn new ways of guest service, but we can have fun at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that actually just became one of my very favorite quotes of his, and it's <laughs> even better since we know it's actually his. <laughs> it's in the museum, and it has to be his. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, I only got to spend about four hours in the museum, and that wasn't nearly enough. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, you have to go back. Absolutely. You mentioned, kind of touched on this in passing, and I don't get to ask this question very often, so I'm, lo I'm looking forward to asking this, even if it's just a short answer. From what I understand as I was doing my research preparing for this, while you were working for Disney after you got back from Tokyo – that's also when and where you met your wife, Pam. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> can you tell me how, how that happened? Yeah, I, I transferred from Tokyo Disneyland, and Pam transferred from, from Disneyland. She'd been a tour guide, and she'd worked on Main Street in the candy kitchen as a candy maker. And she was working in the Disney University at the... Uh, Recreation Club, also known as the Mickey Mouse Activity Center, MMAC, which was under the auspices of the Disney University at the time. So she and I actually were colleagues for uh, quite a number of, of months before we ever became a couple. Interesting. And, you know, since she worked for Disney, too, I just might have to talk to her about seeing if she wants to be a guest on here, too. She would be a great interviewee. I'm sure she would. I think that would be a lot of fun. So after we finish this, I'll have to send her an email and say, okay, you're next. Exactly. <laughs> so, so how long did you end up working for Disney once you got back from Tokyo? The studio was, uh, let's see, Tokyo Disneyland and, uh, opened in April of 83. So this is our 30th anniversary. 
and I stayed on for about six months. Um, I came back for two years uh, just after Michael Eisner and Frank Wells came on board. In fact, I was the the guy who got to give Michael Eisner and Frank Wells their uh, name badges that uh, basically have your first name, not your last name on them. So it was an interesting time to be in the company. Wow. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I don't know how much you, you uh, have about this or might want to share about this, but what was it like as it was transitioning to Eisner and Wells uh, during that period where kind of it seemed like you know, Disney had been having a really rough time internally and externally, and then they came in and it seems like at the time kind of really not just brought a new direction, but kind of a new life to the company. Yeah, I mean, it was um, it was a wake-up call to the organization with all the corporate raiders and all the challenges that the company faced. You know, I think that, that Ron Miller, as the CEO of the company at the time, was a truly amazing guy and not given credit for the the creativity that he brought to the organization. But be that as it may, Mike Leisner and Frank Wells brought a different level of intensity, business savvy, uh, connectivity, and it brought the organization back from the brink of a, a you know a challenging time when we could have been taken over by Saul Steinberg or some of these other corporate raiders that might not have had the same interest in maintaining Walt's dream. Right. And they really were a very integral partnership with each other, weren't they? Oh, you mean Michael Eisner and Frank Wells? Yes. Oh, indeed. Yeah. Indeed. In what I present in retreats around the world for executives, Eisner and Wells brought back the balance that the corporation had with Walt Disney and Roy Disney is that Michael was the embodiment of Walt and that he was a dreamer and Frank Wells as an operations guru was really kind of like Roy Disney and that he was the doer he made things happen he was the glue that held the whole machine together Mhm right plus they were big supporters of the Disney University in fact when I I contacted Michael for a testimonial for my book, Disney U. He, he wrote that even when he started at the company, he had to go through Disney U even as the CEO because that was uh, symbolic of what the company was about, is nobody is above being trained and learning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I noticed that. I noticed that uh, he had that endorsement in there, which I thought was fantastic. What was it like pinning the name tag on the CEO. Well, one of the things that, that Michael needed to to realize was that it's a first name basis organization. You're not Mr. Uh, Eisner or, or Frank is not Mr. Wells. And indeed, they brought back a lot of the corporation values that had been in place years ago. In fact, there's a quote, and I'm not sure where it came from, if it's in the, it's in the Walt Disney Family Museum or if it's on one of the widely quoted websites, but Walt talked even in the 40s and 50s is that there are a lot of people at the Disney Studios that have retired, but they haven't yet told me. And the idea was that they've been kind of resting on their laurels. And certainly there's a, the famous quote about that Walt said, don't rest on your laurels, yada, yada, yada. We've all heard that. But that kind of became uh, Michael and Frank's challenge was let's re-inject that concept of creativity into the studio's hence into the theme parks. That makes sense. I tend to hear a lot about you know, kind of the last few years, particularly after uh, Frank Wells had unfortunately passed, right. but maybe not so much about those earlier years and what they really brought to the company and how significant that was. Well, I mean, Walt talked about, and this is one of the, the things that I refreshed my memory on, when I was doing research for Disney U, and one of the executives that was instrumental in the Disney University is a guy named Tom Eastman, and he was the, the corporate director of all Disney universities. And he reminded me of Walt's admonition to keep plussing the show. And he talked about at the just at the basic level where he is an 18-year-old cast member, and he's working on the Jungle Cruise, and Walt rides on some of the attractions and he rides on each of the Jungle Cruise boats and he realizes that the skippers aren't showing enough enthusiasm in how they deliver their spiel. 
and how he said, we've invested millions of dollars in this attraction, but each of you skippers act nonchalant or bored because you've seen the hippos jump out of the water or you've heard the soundtrack multiple times in a day or in a year. And he said, we've got to keep plussing our show. And so I think that Michael Eisner and Frank Wells brought that urgency back to the company of how do we plus our show, whether it's in the films that we produce or at the theme parks or at the resorts. Right. Yeah, and a lot of the resort expansion and the level of detail and story that was involved in that uh, really came from Eisner and Wells, if I'm not mistaken, uh, at Walt Disney World. Yeah, again, they were they were all about plussing the show and let's let's keep pushing new frontiers. Marty Sklar said it succinctly when I interviewed him for for Disney U. He said that Walt Disney had one foot in the past and one foot in the future. And really, in that quote from Marty, again, the retired vice chair of Disney Imagineering, there are very few individuals who can bridge that gap. You think of Steve Jobs with Apple. And so what we lost when Walt passed away was brought back in a variety of forms, but I think that Eisner and Wells really helped create that that ability to say, yes, we have a legacy, but let's not hang out there. Let's go to the future, and maybe we have to ruffle a few feathers, but that's really what Walt would have done. Yeah, and and he frequently did. Um, So through all your time working for Disney as an intern and then in the few years that you did after graduate school, uh, in either or both of those times, can you think of a time that you remember thinking, you know what, I'm doing something truly special here? I think opening Tokyo Disneyland was that moment, Randy, because it was uh, the first international theme park for the company, and we saw these newly hired cast members or on, on opening day, you see the thousands of guests coming in and, and enjoying this environment that up until then had been reserved for those who could afford to fly to California or Florida to enjoy this, this environment. And more importantly, um, fast forward 30 years, this is when my wife and I went back just last month to Tokyo Disneyland and Tokyo Disney Sea to see that the dream is still alive, it's been maintained, and that's the key for any Disney property. It's is moving beyond grand opening and maintaining both the property and the cast members, and I felt a, a great sense of pride just last month in going back. I can't imagine, but I imagine that that would be very difficult to top, the, the opening of a theme park. Well, also, when, when I presented with Jim Cora last month at the Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco, and he and I were blessed with the opportunity to present at this world-renowned uh, museum, and, and your listeners must go to San Francisco and visit the Walt Disney Family Museum, but he and I gave a presentation to... Uh, a group of about 125, 130 museum members and and visitors from around the uh, California, San Francisco area, including Walt's grandchildren, and to to sit in a in an audience and just to chat with Jim Cora about starting the Disney University and to chat with him about the pressures of opening the Enchanted Tiki Room and hoping that the birds would sing when Walt was in the audience. I mean, those <laughs> those moments, both when I was a cast member 30 years ago and just last month, resonate with me uh, tremendously. Yeah, and in fact, I was going to bring that up about your presentation at the Walt Disney Family Museum. Uh, so since you had mentioned it here, let's go ahead and talk about that a little bit more if we can. What kind of was the core or some of the major takeaways from that presentation for the audience? I think they heard, um, well, Jim and I talked about working with and for Have you ever experienced uncontrollable bouts of geekdom? If so, the Anomaly podcast may be right for you. In clinical studies, Anomaly's interviews, convention reports, commentary on geek culture, games, sci-fi and fantasy television, literature, and film provided a feeling of fullness while promoting health for optimal geekiness. 
The Anomaly Podcast is not suitable for all people. Only geekily active cool chicks with a healthy sense of humor should listen. Geekily active cool guys should listen, too. Anomaly has resulted in sudden fits of squee. Broad smiles may appear without warning and could become permanent. The most common side effects of Anomaly are unconsciously joining in the Gamma Quadrant golf clap, out loud, at work, to the amusement of co-workers, and attempting to interject opinions aloud to hosts who can't hear the listener. But in all cases, the benefits outweigh the risks. Ask your Anomaly if you're healthy enough for entertainment of this caliber. You don't need a doctor's messy handwriting to obtain a free subscription. Anomaly is available over-the-counter at Stitcher Radio and in the iTunes, Zune, and BlackBerry stores. You can also stream episodes of Anomaly and Anomaly Supplemental at AnomalyPodcast.com. That's A-N-O-M-A-L-Y Podcast.com. Just one one-hour episode provides 24 hours of relief and never leaves a bad taste in your mouth. Music by Jewelbeat. That brings us to the end of this week's show. A special thank you to Doug Lip for being my guest, and to you for listening. Come back next time for some valuable insights and interesting stories as we wrap up this interview. If you've worked for the Walt Disney Company in any capacity and would like to share a positive story, email me at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com or call the listener feedback line at 734 734- Two three story anytime 24 hours a day and if you'd like to be a guest on the show let's talk if you're a disney guest of any disney experience and had an encounter or an interaction with a cast member that made some extra disney magic or had any special disney experience you want to share or give a compliment or a thank you for anything disney has done i'd love to hear from you too Email me at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com or call the listener feedback line at 734-23-STORY and tell me about your experience. We're almost to episode 50, so if we can make that show extra special by having a few stories called or emailed in from you, that would be awesome. Subscribe to Stories of the Magic in iTunes, the Xbox Music Store, on the website, or you can hear Stories of the Magic while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio. I'm also working on getting the show on TuneIn Radio, like I mentioned a couple weeks ago. Uh, In case that's your preferred method of listening, I'm trying to get it there. I haven't heard anything back yet, but if and when something happens on that front, I will let you know. If you like the show, please rate and review Stories of the Magic in iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or wherever else you listen to the show and can rate it. The more reviews and ratings the show has, the better it shows up in lists and searches so it's easy for people to find. And believe me, it only takes one or two to make a big difference in where it shows up on those things. And it only takes a couple of minutes at most to do. If you have any comments, questions, suggestions, or anything like that, visit storiesofthemagic.com and leave a comment on the show notes for this or any episode. While you're there, check out the show notes for useful links from each episode like the link that I'll have in there for the Amazon page with Doug's book that he talks about a little bit in here and we really talk about a lot in the next episode. Please like the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash stories of the magic. Follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash stories of magic and tweet out that you're listening. Pin it on Pinterest, plus one on Google+. Tell your friends about the show. Keep letting others know that you're listening so they can join in the magic too. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Stories of the Magic. There will be other days and other stories. And this tale continues next time. You've been listening to Stories of the Magic with Randy Crane. If you have feedback, want to share a story of your own, or even be a guest on the show, write to Randy at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com or call our listener feedback line 734-23-STORY. And don't forget to visit the website, storiesofthemagic.com, for show notes from this and every episode and to leave your comments. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, live your dreams and make the magic in your world.